The question comes, is it well with your soul? The answer comes today in the form of music. It is well with my soul. I'm the only one on alto. <laughs> I'm nothing special. I'm just the only one on alto. <laughs>
Malachi 3, verses 1 and onward. Look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal, or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. Celebration or condemnation? I'm taking a look at the section in John, starting in chapter 7 and going through chapter 8. And so you'll find the stories that I'm telling today in those two chapters. It's a very fantastic story. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord. Notice what happened when Jesus came. All right, Malachi foresaw that there would be a real confrontation. But who may be able to abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like, as Dean just read, a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost, with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge the floor and gather his wheat into the garner. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable question quenchable fire. Get that mouth working. All right, so there was going to be a confrontation when Jesus came. We'll see that today in today's story. Today we're looking at two stories. Both happened when Jesus returned to Jerusalem. As you know, John, the Gospel of John, writes the stories basically about Jesus' incidences in Jerusalem, in Judea. The others tell mostly in the other parts of Galilee, but John is really focused upon that. The Feast of Tabernacles, that's in chapter 7, and then the woman caught in adultery is in chapter 8. You will learn about the dynamics of what these stories tell this morning. They reveal the religious leaders as being outright evil. And they also reveal what? His amazing compassion. And so clearly that none could miss it. Okay. The Feast of Tabernacles in John 7. This is the fall of A.D. 30. Six months before Calvary. So this is the end of the year. In the spring of the year, he would be on the cross. Not much time left for Jesus to finish the work that he was doing. All right? It's the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm going to tell you about Tabernacles today so you'll understand what that feast meant to the Jews and what it should mean to us. <clears throat> now, Jesus didn't want to be in Judea. There was so much hostility that had built up against him that he was hesitant to go. He knew that he had, every time that he went, confrontation with the Jewish leaders. He didn't like that. Why didn't he like it? Because confrontation somehow took over the story. And he couldn't accomplish the things that he wanted to do. They eclipsed and stole away the story that he was here to accomplish. And so, remember he said, when he healed people, don't tell anybody. You know, be quiet about it. Because it could in, get in the way of what his whole mission was all about. It had been six months since John the Baptist had died. 
How did he die? He was killed. He was in jail, I think, wasn't it, for about a year? And then he was killed. Uh, and so that was on Jesus' mind. John's disciples were curious about Jesus, and there were questions there. And there were strong spiritual reasons, even though he knew that there was built up for a huge reaction against him by the religious leaders, he knew that there were spiritual reasons for him to go to Jerusalem, and so he went. This is Jesus' Jesus' third visit to Jerusalem and Judea, third time. And this time he stays for a whole six months. You read about it in this section of John, the final months of his ministry. John 7 through 10 tell us about the Feast of Tabernacles. Underlying all of these events in these chapters, there is a murderous plot set out to destroy Jesus. They watch everything he's doing, and they're finding evidences to take his life. It wasn't an issue now whether if, it was an issue of when they were going to do this. So he faced that every day of his life. Have you been under that kind of torment? Well, that's what it was like. The hour cometh, John says, and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. It's all about heart. The Jews did, leaders, the Jewish leaders, seemed to be totally barren of heart. And it was a confrontation of what happens, like you were describing, when you have heartlessness against heart. Terrible damage happens, as well as the story you were telling as well today. The Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkoth. The last and most joyous of all the seven annual feasts every year. One third, it's one of three, excuse me, not one third, one of three that all males were required to attend. Very important feast. Jesus had gone to Jerusalem at risk of his life to attend this feast of tabernacles, Sukkoth. The celebration of Israel's fellowship with God is what it remembered. Remember when they came out of the land of Egypt, what happened? They started to dwell in what? Yeah, in the desert, in tents, right? That's Sukkoth, temporary dwellings. And so you could go to Jerusalem today, and you will see exactly what I am talking about, what they did. During the 40 years in the wilderness, it was some of the best times that they ever had with God as a nation. was in during those 40 years. Let's never forget that. Sometimes our hardest times are our best times in reality. God and his people were one. They could look outside at nighttime and they can see the pillar of, of fire. He was there. In the daytime, the pillar of cloud, he was there. You know, the Shekinah was always there. The lamps, everything, he was there. They weren't ever plagued by any evil in that time 40 years of the wilderness. Mouths start working. The hours of Egypt were behind them. Before them, the promised land. Behind them, all of the torment and evil. Ahead of them, the wonderful, what we look forward to as well, heaven. Okay, the anticipation of the second advent, when we would escape the horrors of this world and into the eternal bliss of God. So that's what it was all about. The tabernacles is celebrating that kind of a thing. Going home, being with God, 
that kind of a thing. The spring festivals are on their left-hand side of the screen, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and First Fruits, and then Pentecost. The end of the year is dealing with trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles. And so you can see how that all fits together, and the last one of the year is Tabernacles. And that's where we're at in the story right now. The Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, the spring started out with Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. It simplified, signified <laughs> redemption. Um, the gospels. <laughs> I can't talk. The gospels report it is as a time of complaining and hostility towards Jesus. When God was doing what they had always asked Him to do. They only found reason to complain. John records that perhaps better than any of the rest of them. In the fall festivals, typifying the second coming, the fulfillment of all of God's promises, what he really wants for all of mankind, symbolized by trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles, and I made it through without making a mistake. Did you see that? Represented in the 40 years of the deal. Also, they were complaining to God all that time. They called it the time of joy, but boy, did they love to complain. <laughs> it was the time of the winter equinox. September, early October, crops were in, labor was over, the earth could rest. A time for the latter rain refill the empty cisterns. That picture you see up there, which you could hardly figure out what it is, that is a man. That little dot in there is a man standing inside the cistern at, at Masada. I've been in that cistern. It is that big. It's like a football field in there, it seems like. And look how high it is. This is on top of a mountain. How did they ever get water up there? They carried it in by donkey. Up narrow ridges and went all year round as much as they can get in there. And that's what they lived off of, the cisterns. And so that's what was happening. You know, the winter rains were about to come. It was time to replenish everything so that the spring, you know, the crops could come out and everything would be wonderful. Tabernacles represented last year's work done. Now we're prepared. God send the rains and have a new year ahead of us. The Day of Atonement had removed sin from them. That was just five days ago. They believed that God had freed them from their sin on the Day of Atonement. Isn't that a cause for rejoicing? Having all the crops in, rejoicing, right? Winter rains, rest, all of those things. Their joy was overwhelming in the tabernacles. It was contagious. It was a mood to celebrate. The treasury chests were opened up and gifts were poured out to the people, to strangers, to the poor, whoever it was. Tabernacles was just simply a time of unbelievable joy. Kind of like Christmas maybe? Everyone moved into temporary booths for the entire seven days of the feast. Actually, it was eight days. Started on a Sabbath and ended on a Sabbath, you know. Eight days, Sabbath in between two Sabbaths. Eating, sleeping, praying, everything they did was in these little street cottages that you see on the bottom there. You can go to Jerusalem today and you'll find even in their little balconies outside of their, of their house on the second floor, they erect these little things and they go out and they spend their sukkah out there to remind them to get the whole feel of what it's like. It's an amazing time, celebration. Not only that, but they, uh, well, they thank God for the past and for the future, but also they brought in all of the boughs and all of the greenery. It's just a wonderful time. 
Sukkoth was filled with spiritual memories. Um, According to the Jewish tradition, the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night first appeared on the day of tabernacles. So they would have that in their mind to think about. That's when God came and tabernacled with them. On the same day, Moses came down from the mount to announce the tabernacle of God was to be built. You get the connection? Tabernacling, Shekinah, pillar of cloud, tabernacling, you know, building the tabernacle so God could tabernacle with him. Of course it's going to be a fun thing. Solomon's temple, when he prayed, the tradition says that when he prayed, the power of God came down and settled into the tabernacle, and it happened on tabernacles, according to the Jewish tradition. They tell us that's when it happened. First Kings 8 and Second Chronicles 7. So tabernacles meant dwelling with God, having his protection and guidance every moment of the day and night. And thank you if you were saying prayers. My mouth seems to be working now. They ate his food, drank his water, and had a visible reminder of his presence all through their lives during that time. Now just to show you how important tabernacles is, just take a look at this. This means a lot to the Jews. may not to you, but it means a lot to them. The number seven. Count how often it appears. In the spring feast, it appeared only in the number of days for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and at Pentecost, seven times seven days after Passover. Okay? That's all seven appears. Count up with tabernacles. There's an explosion of the number seven. Tabernacles lasted seven days, took place when the se- in the seventh month was at its full height and had the number seven impressed on its characteristic sacrifices. For example, 70 bullocks, 14 rams. You get in the numbers, you know, seven times two, 14. What is seven into 98? I don't know. 182 sacrifices. I know that one, 26 by seven. So maybe some of you can do the math and figure that out for me. Plus, 336, 48 times 7, tenths of ephah. So in all of their sacrifices and everything, the number 7 was there. It was saturated with 7. What does that mean to the Jew? Perfection. Perfection. So God was simply telling them, this last festival of the year, this is the best of them all. Rejoice. Celebrate. God is filling this with abundance beyond anything you've ever seen all through the year. Would they be happy about that? Would they move out of their comfortable homes or live in these shelters? Yeah. Well, they would do that for seven or eight days, but they don't want to go 40 years back there. Mm -mm. Anyway, the feast begins. Midnight, a blast from the priest's trumpets announced the feast had begun. The gates of the temple were thrown open. Sacrifices were examined for sacrificing, and you saw how many of them there were. As the time of the morning sacrifice approached, the priest, and you can see in this little map on the bottom right-hand side, the little red line, they'd go from the temple all the way down. You see the blue at the bottom, and a little note says, Pool of Siloam. They would walk all that distance down to the Pool of Siloam, and they would take their flagons, their, their jugs, and they would fill it up, and then they would walk all the way back up to the top, back to the temple again. And as they go, there would be songs all along the way to celebrate what was happening. Because here, as they dipped in and they drew the water from into the golden pitcher, they chanted Bible texts. And one of those that they chanted 
was Isaiah 12. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. See that? All right. Mixed with sacrificial wine. So they would have one flagon with water from the pool of Shalom and another one with wine. And they had some conduits built in right there at the temple where they poured these near the altar. And one went down with water, one went down with wine, and then they merged together and floated out to the Kidron, out to the Dead Sea, out to the world. And that is the water of life, the blood of life, mixed together now goes out to the entire world. It was filled with ceremonies, and ceremonies had meaning. And the Jews, as they watched this, and they listened to the words being sung, and everything happening, it reminded them of the amazing promises and the gifts and the blessings of God throughout their life. Healing waters flowing to the entire world. A second procession began the same time from the Kidron Valley to gather willow branches and they would go back up and they would decorate all around the altar of burnt offerings with these willow branches. And here you can see a picture of some of them. They do this today in our world today. Music just filled the week as they sang various sections of the Halil uh, in Psalm 113 to 118. You might want to look at that. Accompanied by flutes and by choirs. It was a fun time into the evening. Remember they start midnight? All the way into the evening of that day. At night, atop two lofty pillars erected in the court, you can see one of them there in the picture, of women. And there were balconies around for the women to observe all that was taking place, as you can see in the painting here. Immense lamps were lighted, which cast their glow over the entire temple. And we're told that there was so much light that it was like daytime. I think we have something like that in New York City in New Year's, uh, New Year's Day, don't we? Something like that? It's all lit up and people are all excited. Well, that's what Tabernacles was all about. Making it almost like daytime. It must have seemed like the Shekinah, God's presence, was hovering over the temple, lighting everybody under its light. The final trip to Siloam, the last day of the feast, the priest poured the contents of the golden pitcher the last time, flowed out to the world, bringing refreshing new rain, the Holy Spirit, to all mankind. Now, if you knew what these things represented, they'd have a lot of meaning, of course. Jesus was there. He knew what these things meant, and he was trying to point their attention to the fulfillment of these things. And suddenly a voice was heard, resounding in the temple, the one who had not wanted to go because of fear of all that would happen in his ministry if he went. Suddenly he couldn't resist and he was there in the temple as they were pouring the water and the wine into the conduits down to the river Kindred. And a voice was suddenly heard startling the people, bringing fear to the priests. And it was Jesus. He suddenly was in the temple standing in the court and crying in a voice so loud that everybody could hear, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. Can you imagine the effect of that? They had just seen all of this happen, and now Jesus is making this declaration, so typical of the way John would put it. Come to me. I am the water of life. 
Woo! The people loved it. The priests. He said, He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. That text is in our passage today, John 7. Later on that day, with that in your mind, pouring of the water, I am the water of life. Come unto me. In the final illumination, Jesus again stood up and declared, just like he had with the water, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus was making things as plain as, could, as they possibly could be. And the people were getting it. It was happening at tabernacles. The effect was instantaneous. The vast multitude were saying, he's a prophet. Others said, he's the Christ. The temple guard were saying, never did a man speak like this man. When they sent the guard to shut him up, to capture him, to get him away, they couldn't do it because they said, we've never heard a man speak like this. The guard couldn't do it. Jesus was changing. And yet, the leaders wanted him dead. The fulfillment of all of the history, all the prophecies, all of the stories of their whole history that they faithfully subscribed to was there. And he was telling them, I am the fulfillment of all of this. And they had nothing to do with him. They only hated him. A cause for celebration or condemnation. Now you've had the story of the temple and what happened in the temple and, you know, in the brook and all of that and the light and the water of life, all of that in your mind. The story shifts. John shifts it right into chapter 8 and he tells us a second story that you have to have. And go home and look at these two in your Bible and you can see what I'm talking about. The Jews were at a critical point. At a time of the Roman Empire, they accounted in numbers 10% of the world population. Let that sink in for a few minutes. Abraham's blessing rested on Isaac and Ishmael, didn't it? And their descendants. To, today, the descendants of Ishmael number how many? How much percent of the world? Yeah, that is an ouch, isn't it? Can you read this passage up here? Very, very hard to read. In the top of the picture, his blood be upon us and our children. Hmm. The very next day, after the events that I just told you about, the very next day, frustrated by their inability to condemn Jesus as a heretic, the religious leaders try another approach. Think about this. Jesus is in the temple. He is sitting Certain they have a foolproof plan to destroy him, 
they rush in to entrap him. After all, in their mind, the damage that he had done the previous day. You know what it is, don't you? They drag in tow a woman. She has been caught by eyewitnesses who never show up. Yeah. yeah, handy. Yeah, it was a setup. It was planned. It was a setup. Who did this setup? The religious leaders did this. And they felt entirely justified to do this. In the very act of adultery. Why did they do it? Because they're going to get rid of Christ. And they feel like anything is worth getting rid of Christ. Wow. Contrary to the law, because the law demands that witnesses be present. They didn't produce any. They just said. Neither is the other party who must also be in char- uh, charged, and uh, neither is the other party who must also be charged and punished. So they're not going to hurt him. He's their hero. In fact, then later on, he's their savior. The one that was set to entrap the poor lady became their savior. That's what they were trading off. A scheme engineered to destroy Jesus. The unknown man was an accomplice, as I say, their savior. He would be rewarded even though the law required that he would be condemned as well. They break all of the rules that they're charging Jesus is guilty of and do it so freely without a conscience. This was intended not to be a trial, but a lynching. And not necessarily at the woman, but to capture Jesus and destroy him. They demanded that Jesus pass judgment upon her. All his options, however, in their mind, would end up in his own destruction. If he said stoner, he would be in violation of the Roman law, and the Roman law would put away Jesus. If he refused to pass judgment, he would be a violation, they felt, of God's law. So they got him caught in an impossible situation, but that's not even all. If he did nothing, the crowd might stone him. Sure proof plan. Religious leaders' devious plans. I'm a religious leader. Is it possible for me to be devious like this? Boy, I hope not. You have got to be morally dead to do stuff like this. What could Jesus do? You can't fool Jesus. (laughs) You can't fool Jesus. Say amen to that. That's so great. You can't frustrate him. He's going to win. He's going to win in the end too. He's wonderful. Without a word, he simply stoops down and begins to ride on the ground. They continue to press for his verdict. Standing up, he surprises them by saying, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. They hadn't thought of that one. He nailed them. All right, go ahead. But those of you that are without sin, be the first one to cast a stone. He stoops down again. He continues to write. One by one. It's in John chapter 8. One by one, her accusers bend over and read what he is writing. And what do they do? They take off. Why do you think they took off? Do you think he was writing some stuff that might embarrass them? Do you think he knew stuff about them that they didn't want out? If they were being so shameless as to do this to this woman, then verily he could do that to them. Right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
Wow, they hadn't figured this out, but devious minds don't figure things out like that. He turned the tables on them. No longer were they interested in her sin. Instead, they were frightened about their own sins. The thought that he wrote, uh, the sins of her accusers comes from ancient times. Um, after they were all gone, Jesus stands up and he looks around and he says, where are your accusers? Did no man condemn you? She looks around. And you got to picture this woman. What a pitiful scene it must have been for her to go through. An experience to be hauled in, in front of people, before, by the, the leaders of the church. Oh my goodness. She looks around and they're all gone. She says, no man, Lord. She could hardly get the words out. No man, Lord. Do you know what's going on in her heart? Out of fear, total love comes in. Out of fear. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go thy way. And from henceforth, sin no more. These words melt her heart. Sobbed with grateful love and bitter tears, she confessed her sin to her Savior. And on that moment, which they thought would be the end of Jesus, and they didn't care what happened to her, was a crowning moment for Jesus and changed this woman's life completely. If you think that you can't trust Jesus, you need to think about this story. This is an amazing story. This doesn't end there. Who is this woman caught in adultery? Ellen G. White writes amazingly. She said she's Mary. But which Mary? In the Bible, we have Mary, the mother of Jesus. No, no, that's not her. Uh, we have Mary Magdalene. She accompanied Jesus on a preaching tour. She beheld the crucifixion. These are what we know about Mary. She went with another Mary to where he was laid. She kept vigil near the tomb. She was one of the first at the tomb before or at sunrise of his resurrection. She was one of the first to inform the disciples of the resurrection. You can see all the passages there. Either the first or among the first to whom Jesus appeared after his resurrection, Jesus and she had a lot of time together. They were connected. She was generally been connect, identified as the woman which was the sinner and who anointed Jesus' feet. Mary is also, you have, a Mary who is the sister of who? So those are the prime. There are other Marys, but these are the prime choices. And look at this. Ellen White says, Mary Magdalene, sister of Mary, Lazarus and Martha, she's the same Mary. That's what she says. The one who had fallen, that's this Mary, and whose mind had been the habitation of demons, was brought very near to the Savior in fellowship and ministry. It was Mary who sat at his feet and learned of him in the home of her home with brother and sister. It was Mary who poured upon his head the precious anointing oil and bathed his feet with her tears. Mary stood beside the cross and followed him to the sepulcher. Mary was the first at the tomb after the resurrection. It was Mary who first proclaimed a risen Savior. Wow. This woman who they dragged up 
without any concern for. She was just rubbish to be thrown away. And she probably would have agreed because her life had been a horrible wreck. But Jesus didn't see her that way at all, did he? He forgave her. Gave her a new life. And her life totally changed. Wow. So you have in the feast all of the representation of all things changed for good. And the whole year coming to an end and all good things in the future. That's exactly what happened to Mary as well. On the very next day. We don't know when Jesus first met Mary. It isn't clear in Scripture or even in the writings of Ellen White. The first encounters are not tied to specific dates. But we know that she lived with her sister Martha and brother Lazarus in Bethany and somehow things started going bad for her. She left Bethany and lived for a while in Magdala, a lakeside town just south of Capernaum. Hence the name Mary Magdalene. Sometime in Jesus' travels, he came upon her and found her filled with seven demons from which he freed her. And there's the text. Jesus had a long record with Mary. It was bad and it was good. But it was good because of whom? Jesus made the good come out. He made a new Mary. She returned to her home in Bethany, to her sister and brother, a new person. Later, she could not hold herself back from going to the house uh, of the healed leper Simon and pouring upon Jesus' head the precious anointing oil and bathing his feet with her tears. Ellen G. White says, listen to this. She says that Simon the leper was one who they used the priest used to entrap Mary as an adulteress. If it all happened that way, you can see all of the intrigue taking place. She went to the man's house who had got her caught, went and washed the feet of Jesus right in Simon's house. The man who had great reason to be thankful for Jesus healing him had allowed himself to become used by the priest to destroy Mary, who might have even been a relative. Amazing. She becomes as close to Jesus, even as John, the beloved disciple, was. Oh, isn't that an amazing story? It's an amazing story in the sense that it gives us a glimpse into how horrible these religious leaders are and how absolutely wonderful Jesus is and it's told in the life of characters he that loveth not knoweth not God for God is love how evil mankind becomes when the hearts are set against God in favor of self-promotion should self-promotion ever motivate religious people the religious leaders and Simon the leper that was what their concern was and they fell heavily on those things how meaningless an empty life is without Jesus. The Feast of Tabernacle was only fun, that's all. But if you remember what it stood for and the promises that Jesus makes to us that are very real, it's wonderful. In just six months, they put Jesus to death. However sinful we are, Jesus can totally transform us. What a glorious book the Bible is. 
But if you read it apart from His Spirit, it can destroy you. The Feast of Tabernacles is about victory in Jesus. Just the things we have reviewed today reveal to me many of my faults. I find it so easy for these, I don't know where they come from, but they come into my heart, these same kind of things that must have been whispered into the minds of the religious leaders. The devil is still doing that today. Is he doing it in your heart too? And it just comes in, and I don't know where it comes from, but it's got a hold of me. You know, and I see these things, and I realize how far from Jesus I am. I praise the Lord that today I'm getting a little better about disowning those things. I am so happy that he said to her, because I hear him also saying this to me, neither do I condemn you. And I'm saying, really, Lord? I've almost, I've got 45 years in ministry. You ought to be fed up with me by now. You don't condemn me? Why not? I deserve it. I'd be on the religious leader's side. Yeah, give it to him. He deserves it. You know. The light that lighteth every man calls unto each one of us, come unto me and drink. I am the light of life. I never want to forget how evil mankind can become. When they set their heart against God, even while they're carrying a Bible in their hands, in favor of self-promotion. Even though engaged in religious pursuits, we can, in fact, become the worst enemies of God and our fellow man. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother. This comes from John. You know, and you can put it right down in simple things like this. God is love, and this text here. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, this is what the Jews were doing all the time. He is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Jesus knew how much they hated him. He witnessed how much hatred they had toward this woman who was such good woman. He saw in the home, <laughs> Simon the leper, and what he was doing, even though Jesus had healed him, he saw it all around him. And I would be somehow inclined to be a little vindictive, but Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross. Can you say, thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Lord Jesus. He's smart enough to get out of the entanglements and he goes right to the heart. John tells us these stories, powerful stories. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word today and what it has said to us. It speaks to us encouragement. It reminds us uh, that there are some of this evil in our hearts as well that was in their hearts long ago. It still is alive. There still is a tempter who can speak and his words find some kind of residence in us. I don't like them in my heart anymore, and I know that no one here likes them either. Free us from those things so that we can hear only your words all the time. I am the water of life. Come unto me and drink. I am the light 
of the world that lights every man. Be our light and be our water. Keep us focused upon you. And may we be absolutely amazed and thrilled that you who are able to win in such an insidious battle are also able to win in our battles as well. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.